Hi, and welcome back to the Too Much Lime podcast. I'm Julia. And I'm Maddie. And we wanted to welcome you to today's episode. As a reminder, all of our episodes and the podcast in general is in collaboration with the Global Lime Alliance. If you don't know what the GLA is, it's a non-for-profit organization that spreads awareness, raises money, and helps fund research for Lyme and other tick-borne diseases. Um, Maddie and I are both GLA ambassadors because we believe that it's one of the best organizations for Lyme disease research and awareness. If you need more information, you can check them out online on their website. Today, we're going to be talking about Maddie's health journey and experiences with Lyme disease and other infectious diseases. So Maddie, if you want to start us off, I know that it kind of begins towards childhood and goes along from there. Yeah, absolutely. Hi, everybody. Just to kind of preface this at the beginning, I want to say that I've undergone a bunch of different treatments under a lot of different medical professionals and different medical ideologies. So it's important to know that I'm not a doctor and, you know, I'm just offering you my experiences but in no way should be construed as medical advice. And also just a trigger warning for some people, we are going to briefly touch on the topic of suicidal thoughts. And so if that's not something that's really productive for you, definitely maybe just read the show notes and then go ahead and listen to our next episode instead. So for me, I was relatively healthy until um, about four years old and I got um, what's called kidney reflux. And you have to get tested for this type of reflux two or three times a year. And so I would go down to Johns Hopkins University Hospital in Baltimore and do my testing for that. But it's like a very traumatic, personal and invasive test. And I would always kind of have like a nervous breakdown on my way to doing these. And so there was not a lot of times throughout my childhood for these four or five years that I was getting treated for it that I wasn't thinking about it. I always had a mental countdown in my head and I was trying to figure out, you know, how I could kind of not have to do it or like put try and put it out of my mind, but it was just always there. So it was always really stressed out. So I had um, a couple of surgeries to the first one didn't work and then the second one did work, but it was just super stressful and something I always felt very ashamed about because As a kid, you're kind of taught, you know, don't talk about anything that has to do with, you know, like your reproductive system or, you know, your bladder and your like kidneys and like that kind of all of those systems. And which is essentially what happens when you have kidney reflux, it like affects your kidneys and your bladder. And so I was always kind of ashamed of it. And I can remember there was this year where I had a surgery and I came back to school I think it was in third grade and I had kind of one of those IV marks on your hand from, you know, being, having like the anesthesiologist, like put all of the stuff in. And I was so nervous that the other kids in my class were going to find this little mark and they were going to ask me about it and I was going to have to explain everything. So I spent like a couple days until it healed with like one of my hands over the other one to try and like hide it and stuff. So it was kind of one of those things where it definitely created some like PTSD symptoms for me and like a lot of medical trauma, which 
until about a year ago, I didn't really think that how much it affected me was valid until I kind of learned more about medical trauma and what that's like, especially when you have something like that at a young age. And so, Julia, I know you and I have talked about this and a little bit on your episode, too, about how trauma affects, you know, the rest of your life and it affects the systems of your body and, you know, how severe you get infections and all kinds of things like that, how quickly you recover from things. And so that's why I just kind of point this out because it definitely has affected my body and continues to this day. And so it definitely fits into my Lyme journey a little bit. Yeah. It's a lot more powerful, I think, than we give it credit for. And then, you know, you kind of look back a little bit later and you're like, oh my gosh, that was actually a lot more influential than I realized it was. Yeah, exactly. So that was definitely challenging. And I had a couple of, you know, about a year off of all of kinds of stuff once they finally fixed the reflux. But then, you know, in 2007, so I was about nine, I got two quick strep infections over a summer. And then I had this rapid onset of OCD tick-like symptoms, which are usually, I had to like touch things multiple times or I had to read out loud, which was really frustrating and like repeat certain words if it like didn't sound right in my head. So it was definitely like a very odd experience. And my parents were concerned, obviously, because I was, you know, like petting things in my room before going downstairs. And it happened so quick and I'd never, you know, exhibited behaviors like that. So they looked it up and they found this thing called um, PANDAS, which is a pediatric autoimmune disorder that has to do with strep infections, but can also be influenced by other infections in which your body kind of, when you get a strep infection, it creates these antibodies and it mistakes parts of your brain and starts attacking that part of your brain and it causes these OCD-like symptoms and they come on super fast and that's basically, you know, what happened. And so we went to the pediatrician and my mom was like, I think this is what's happening to her. You know, what do we do about it? And the pediatrician was basically like, that doesn't exist. So we had to kind of, they just told me to go get tested for OCD. So I did. And the person was like, yeah, you have mild OCD. It's not that bad. I did some light therapy and stuff, but just one day it suddenly went away. And now we know a lot more about brain inflammation from like my understanding now of Lyme disease and just infectious diseases in general that can affect the brain about how, you know, this stuff happens when your brain starts to inflame and when the inflammation goes down and like they suddenly resolve without, you know, any kind of big fixes that would really correlate. So it kind of went away after a couple of years and that was great, but I was still never really well. I started getting constant sore throats, constant, you know, UTI and yeast infections, which are actually symptoms of the kidney reflux. That's like originally how they found out that I was having them because a four-year-old getting constant UTIs is definitely abnormal. Right. And so um, we were trying to figure, I basically went through two or three years where I had like a UTI that never went away. I would go to the doctor, they would give me medication, it would go away for a day or two, and then it would come back. And so that on top of the medical trauma that I had been through, kind of, you you know, revolving around the same organs and stuff like that, 
was similarly bringing up all of these like PTSD like feelings. And so I was always, you know, I was getting random infections, you know, everybody was getting the flu, I was getting flu B instead of flu A, you know, I was getting, it was like my body was unable to recover from things or fight anything off. And I always was extremely tired. And I didn't know this at the time, but two other symptoms that I had, and I'd had for a really long time, you know, like, since I was young, so I didn't really notice that it was a symptom and not just everyday wear and tear of life were these kind of shooting pains in my legs. And then this like wicked sensitivity to light in which I would go outside. And, you know, everybody I think reacts poorly when they first go outside if it's really bright out. But even if it wasn't bright out, I would get these headaches and I would kind of want to walk around with like a baseball cap or sunglasses on. And I used to tell my parents, you know, I, I always get headaches on the weekends. And they're like, what are you talking about? And we had moved into this house where one of our walls is essentially all windows. And it's right in the living rooms, like where everybody is. And where I went to school, there weren't a ton of windows. And it was, you know, definitely more dark. And so during the school week, I wouldn't get the headaches because I wasn't get, being affected by as much light. But whenever we were home, we were always on the weekends in the living room and I would be exposed to this light and I would always get these insane headaches. And so it was just, every time I went to the doctor, they would just kind of, you know, give me antibiotics for whatever infection I had, or just tell me that it was a virus and to go home. And so I was consistently going through all of these and everybody was just like, oh, Maddie has poor genetics. Like, you know, it happens. Oh, um, God, that's so that's so aggravating. <laughs> I know it's just like, oh, you have poor, you have a poor immune system. It's like, well, why do I have a poor immune system? Right, actually, it's like, tell know, me why. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We know things now, like constant yeast infections and UTIs, and just random infections in general are a sign of a really weak immune system. Right, and I mean, if you put all of these things together, which nobody ever decided to do, like, and I always went to the same doctor too, so it was frustrating if you'd put these things together, you'd see a lot of similarities of Lyme disease, but it just never, a lot of it I didn't know wasn't normal. So I didn't really bring it up. And then anything that was abnormal and you could really tell my mom was like, if you're sick, you go to the doctor. So she was great. She would always bring me to the doctor and she would, you know, push back and they would always push back against her and say, you know, everything's fine. Take her home. Hmm. Do you remember getting bit by a tick at all? I forgot to ask you this. I didn't. Well, I don't remember at least, but I actually lived in um, a house that was had like woods right in the backyard. And so deer used to come up to basically the back of our house and like in the play area where um, this the place that was. And we spent so much time outside as kids. And actually, our next door neighbors two of them also got Lyme disease and they got it before I did. And we all played together and we're very close. And so it's, it makes sense. you know, <laughs> not ab- abnormal that, you know, I would have gotten a tick bite, which obviously they're so small and so hard to find sometimes oh, that totally. I could have gotten it and not known. Right. Especially for those of you who don't know, Maddie and I are from a small town in upstate New York and upstate New York is quickly becoming one of the highest densities of Lyme disease incidents and other tick-borne diseases for the exact reason that Maddie just said. There's literally deer everywhere and the winters aren't cold anymore. And so they essentially are now living through the winter. And, you know, it's 
it's becoming almost a new hotspot for Lyme, actually. Yeah, and it's this huge issue. And it was one of those things where my next door neighbors, they both caught it relatively early. And so they, it only took them a few, I mean, still, it took them a couple of years to recover. And that's a real bummer. But um, for me, it never, you know, we moved um, soon after they got them to a different house and it just never really came up. And it was, you know, Lyme disease is not something that's talked about, even in a Lyme endemic area that we live in. And so, you know, that's a big reason why Julie and I wanted to create this podcast and why we are Global Lyme Alliance ambassadors and that we think we know firsthand how bad that it can be and how bad it can get, especially if it goes untreated. And so it just, we need to raise the conversation and really increase it. Yeah. And so kind of back to this, I was growing up for years, just everybody knew, you know, I was in and out of school sometimes just because you know, I would have to stay home from school because I would get these infections and they were so painful, especially like UTIs and stuff. I was getting ones that were so painful. I like couldn't really stand up and I was always so embarrassed that I didn't really want anyone to see me. And so in my room, I had this like little closet that you could walk into and the door um, slid shut. And this is back when we had portable DVD players. And so (laughs) On days that I stayed home from school, I would bring my portable DVD player in the closet and basically lay there with the door closed and like all the lights off because I was just like, I didn't want anyone to see me. And so my mom would come and bring me food and stuff like that and check on me. But I was just so stressed out and embarrassed about it that I felt like I, you know, I could never talk about it. It felt very ashamed. I never, you know, even close friends they always knew that I was somewhat sick and, you know, I wasn't in school and stuff, but I never really told them real reasons why. And so that was definitely challenging. But then other things started to happen where I started to get this really extreme knee pain. I used to do a bunch of running stuff when I was younger. And so I was on this running club and if it was going up or downstairs or I was running, I was getting this really bad knee pain. And so I went to an uh, what is the word? An or- orthopedic doctor? Doctor. Yeah. There you go. There's my brain fog for you. An orthopedic <laughs> doctor. And um, he did an MRI and they actually found a stress fracture in my knee, but it wasn't in the place where I told them it was hurting. And so they kind of told me, okay, well, you still need to rest for the knee fracture, but you also have an inflammation of your patella tendon. And so, you know, do these PT exercises and it'll go away. Well, it didn't go away. <laughs> But um, if those of you who don't know, Lyme disease is affects the joints significantly and the knees are one of the biggest places and, you know, joints that they affect. And so it was kind of all of these things that didn't really seem related and no doctor was really willing to put together. And, you know, my mom and I and my dad were struggling to put together and could never really figure it out. But then things got much worse in 2009. So I was probably like 11. I think it was in seventh grade. And I was in bed one night and these OCD thoughts came back again where I couldn't, originally it was that I couldn't stop touching things or saying words out loud, but OCD also presents itself in what's called, you know, cyclical like rumination patterns in which you can't stop thinking about something. It's like an intrusive thought pattern. And all of a sudden I couldn't make a decision. It popped into my head. It was like, do you want to kill yourself? And 
I was relatively happy in my life and there was nothing. I had a great family and I had good friends and there was nothing that would have made me want to do that. And I, I knew, you know, in my core, you know, no, I don't want to die. But the OCD was making it so hard for me to make a decision. And then as soon as I would make a decision, it would pop back into my head again. And so obviously I went running to my parents' room and they were super (laughs) concerned because to them, it sounds like, oh my gosh, our, you know, 11, 12 year old daughter just told us that she's having suicidal thoughts. Right. And so we went back to the same doctor and she was like, yeah, your OCD is back. You know, you should go back to therapy. We'll put her on, you know, what's called Prozac, which is like an antidepressant. And, you know, nothing worked. I would be there and for basically four years until it was all through middle school and through my freshman year of high school, every 15 minutes, this thought would pop into my head. And it would take me 10 minutes of wrestling with myself to totally convince myself I did not want to die before I could stop thinking about it. And then it would pop back into my head again. And so I was always like half there. You know, I would be with, you know, I was, first of all, this is a similar thing where you just don't talk about it. You know, it's, and so I was super ashamed that I had any of these feelings. And so I had, you know, none of my friends knew about it. Most of my family didn't know about it. It was really just my parents and I and, and my brother. And I was basically sitting there and for four years, basically half in, half out, because I was always thinking about, I always had this on my mind and it was all consuming and incredibly terrifying. And I knew that I didn't want to die, but I couldn't stop thinking about it. And so I was, you know, in therapy and stuff like that. And, but it was still really hard because I mean, it's hard to socialize with those things you know you're hanging out with a friend and you're trying to engage fully and you can't because you're 100% you know consumed by something else that's like attacking your mind and I you know even during a test like I would be trying to take a test in school and if it popped into my head which it was going to it would pop up and I would have to deal with it so we'd have to stop taking the test think about it for 10 minutes. And then once I finally, you know, could make a decision, I would move, I could move on and take the test again. And so it was just overall really hard to keep up with that. And so I was struggling so much and it, I was so ashamed and I felt very disconnected from things. And, you know, I'm going to therapy once a week and where we live, there's kind of a, you know, a dearth of, you know, mental health, counseling and different professionals and stuff. So I had to travel like 45 minutes, just one way to go to therapy. So it took up a lot of me being in school and, you know, teachers would always, you know, kind of make snide comments on it. And I would, you know, always just feel so dejected from it because, you know, I'd walk in with a pass, you know, for after taking over my lunch as much as I could to go to therapy and then come back and, you know, try and deal with these, like this horrible, like what felt like a monster inside me. And a teacher would say something like, oh, you just think you can walk in whenever you want, don't you? And you're just saying, they're kind of like, I don't even know what to tell you. Like, if you knew, you'd be surprised that I was standing. Like, and it's not even like I wasn't doing well in your class. Like I was doing, I was doing fine. So. Right. It's the whole invisible, you know, like you look at you and you would have no idea. Oh, no. Yeah. And I think I ended up hiding it really well because from a young age, I learned 
how to hide all of these things because I was always, it was always one thing or another that I felt like I internalized shame about. So I never talked about it. Right. And, right. and in high school and middle school, when already there's so much pressure to be a very specific way, when you, you feel like you're not fitting into that mold because you physically can't, but doctors are also telling you that nothing's wrong. I mean, that's a lot to try to understand. Yeah, and exactly. I just would kind of sit there and, you know, everybody telling you, no, like, your fatigue is normal. I like I, I played basketball and things like that. And they're, you know, yes, of course, you're going to school every day. And you're then you have practice then you have homework. Like, of course, you're going to be tired. And so I just always felt like with all of these sicknesses, and I was always late for school because I could physically not get up. I was so exhausted that my mom would come wake me up because I couldn't wake up to an alarm. It would sleep right through it for like an entire day. And she would come in and I felt so lazy and I like hated myself because I could not get up. And I was like, you must be so lazy. Like everybody else can do this. And you're just sitting here unable to get out of bed. And so I was, you know, always late and always kind of berated by that from whoever was, you know, working or whatever teacher that I like missed part of their class or anything. And it was so hard and it always made me feel like you just can't handle life as well as your peers can. Mm. And I think after a while, you know, that does takes a toll. Oh my God. And I eventually right at the end of middle school got this very serious kidney infection and I the OCD thoughts had started to get a little bit better, at least in the way that I, they were a little less frequent and, you know, there wasn't really any correlation. I hadn't started taking a new medication. The therapy was definitely not doing anything, but it had started to get a little bit better, which was great. But I got this very serious kidney infection and a kidney infection is another sign that you could be having kidney reflux. And so they were worried that I had kind of relapsed into this and it was so bad I couldn't stand up for more than a week without passing out and I couldn't eat anything without throwing up so I lost like 10 pounds and I had already been underweight so it was like seriously underweight so they made me go back to Johns Hopkins for the same tests that I got as a kid but I was so traumatized by them that I refused to do it without being sedated and Mm. they finally agreed to let me do it sedated but it was frustrating because at the time more research had come out that said it actually being sedated does not affect the results of the test. And this is not a test that was just traumatic for me. There's a lot of studies that look into children who have like repeatedly had this done and how it relates to um, post-traumatic stress disorder and stuff like that. And, you know, it's frustrating because everybody my, my mom pushed for me to be sedated as a young kid, but they kept saying, you know, well, it's going to affect the results of the test. And now you're sitting there knowing that it didn't. And you're like, okay, well, you didn't have to go through that for anything. Right. You went through all of this for basically no reason. Yeah. So you're just kind of like, well, that's frustrating. But I, my mom and I also knew I didn't have it. Like it just didn't make sense. It, it didn't line up. And so we were very frustrated to have to go back and do this because it was super traumatic and for and I didn't have it after they looked at it they're like yeah no she's fine um but basically something that you know reinvigorated this trauma and what happens when you have trauma and stuff and a lot of stress your body releases all of these chemicals that inflame your body and if you have Lyme disease 
it's an inflammation-based disease. And so continuing to inflame my body just made things significantly worse. And so it triggered these OCD thoughts to get even worse once again. And so it went through, you know, it was like two years of it being really bad and then it got a little bit better. And then it was like two more years of it being really bad. Hmm. And then in 2014, so my freshman year of high school, they randomly disappeared. I remember I was walking to sharpen my pencil or something like that. And I can literally remember it popping into my head saying, you haven't thought about this once today. And it was like 10 a.m., but it was a freaking miracle. And the fact that I hadn't thought about it 10 times by that point was a miracle. And so I it started to realize that they randomly went away and it had nothing to do with, you know, any other things that were going on in my life. And so you can look back on that now knowing what I know and that I had Lyme disease and specifically neurological Lyme disease that actually breaks the blood brain barrier and the infection gets lodged in your brain and starts to cause a lot of inflammation, which, you know, in turn causes these types of psychiatric or neuropsychiatric disturbances you know, the inflammation was going down. And for some reason, my body was, you know, in a stronger place to handle it. And it started to go down, which was great. But after that, you know, I was feeling much better, but I kept getting these constant infections and this extreme fatigue. So throughout all of high school, I was always tested for mono. And it consistently came back negative, because I always had a sore throat. I'm pretty sure I don't know what a normal feeling throat is at this point. <laughs> and I always had some form of a headache. And I, you know, had this fatigue. And I had these shooting pains. But a lot of it I didn't actually know wasn't normal. I just thought, you know, well, everybody has a headache. It's just kind of like living life. Everybody is tired. You know, life is hard. Right. You know, the only things that seemed abnormal were these infections, but they were just like, oh, you have bad, you have a bad immune system, you know, go right. along. And then I got what's called costochondritis, which is an inflammation of your rib cage in, you know, the end, the, my senior year of high school. And it had always kind of hurt. And basically, Julia, I know we talked about this a little bit in your episode of costochondritis is essentially the inflammation causes you to have the symptoms of having a heart attack, but you're not having a heart attack. Right. So you don't know you're not having a heart attack. (laughs) Exactly. Especially if you know you have Lyme disease, which can affect the lining of your heart and cause you to have a heart attack. Like I, how am I supposed to make the decision about whether or not I'm having a heart attack? Right. Like this time, is it that, or is it my ribs? Like it's like a 50, 50 toss up, honestly. Yeah. And like, so do I just keep going back to the hospital or do I just, you know, call it good? So, I got it basically the rib that was most affected for me was right kind of where the um, wire of a bra would sit like that rib on my left side was super affected. And so if basically if I even barely touched that rib, I would be like in extreme pain. And it had always been like a little bit of a problem, but it always freaked me out. And I didn't want another thing to be wrong with me. So I never brought it up. But then after it got significantly worse, after I got hit uh, during a basketball game, like right on the side, I told my mom and she was like, oh my God, you have breast cancer. And so we were sitting there like, this is awful. So we went back to the doctor and we're trying to like gear up for, you know, a whole like life of having to deal with this. And my mom is phenomenal. And she's like, you know, trying to rally me. And she's been like my rock basically through this 
entire, you know, childhood, we used to watch the Gilmore Girls when I was having these like OCD thoughts and like couldn't calm myself down. And she would just sit and we would start watching the Gilmore Girls, which is a phenomenal show that's just very low key. (laughs) If nobody's seen it, I would definitely recommend it. Yes, I I literally didn't watch it until I got sick. Then I was like, you know what? It's time. I need this. It's happening. And it was wonderful. <laughs> exactly. You're just like, I, I really need this right now. And so my yeah. mom would sit there and watch it with me. I remember I had to sleep in my parents. I was so terrified by these OCD thoughts that I used to have to sleep in my parents' room. I basically slept there for two years, which I totally blocked out until a couple weeks ago when somebody told me about something. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I forgot that happened. And so it was all these things, like, I was too scared to be alone. So I was, like, basically on this, like, little mattress at the end of their bed. And it took years for me to end up, like, back in my room once these thoughts started to go away and, like, the paranoia and stuff like that. But, you know, I got this costochondritis and this rib pain. And basically, I went to the doctor and they were like, you don't have breast cancer. You have, you know, this inflammation of your rib cage. It's fine, but there's also nothing that we can do. So Hmm. once again, please go home. So (laughs) I was just kind of, you know, okay, like very relieved, obviously, that I didn't have any kind of cancer or anything like that, that is kind of what it seemed like at the time. And we went, I like finished out my senior year and, you know, it was as good as it could be. And then I went to my freshman year of college and I was really excited because I had only been really half there for a lot of middle school and high school. And it was be present and, you know, aware and not in any kind of pain or at the doctor's office or, you know, super stressed out that I was going to have to go to the doctor or anything like that. Right. So I was really excited to go. And then the first week I got there was not stellar because I (laughs) tore, like I got all these micro tears in my left tricep and then I got like an extreme case of tonsillitis. And so lovely. <laughs> I basically it was like literally the first week I tore part of my tricep and then so I had like a little sling on that I was wearing. And then the first day that I was allowed to take off the sling, we were going out to a party and the next morning I woke up and I was supposed to meet my friends for brunch and we were walking to the dining hall for brunch and it was so bright. I thought I was going to die. And so for me I was like it seems like you're hungover. And, Hmm. but I was kind of sitting there. I was like, I don't really drink at all. Like I barely drank anything. Like there's no way that I was hungover. And so I was super nauseous and the light was killing me. And all of a sudden I was like getting this kind of vertigo. And I remember staring at a grape on my plate and just being so nauseous. I couldn't even. And so I just stood up and I was like, I have to go. And so I walked back to my room And I passed out for four or five hours and I woke up and I had this like really high fever, was aggressively sweating. And I, my lymph nodes were so swollen that they were cutting into my trachea. And if you've never experienced this, it's the worst thing ever. You can't swallow the saliva in your mouth. Like you, you literally can't do it. So you have to spit it out. And so I was sitting there and I called my mom and I was like, I feel like I'm dying. And so I went to this urgent care, which was actually the best thing to come out of going to school in this area in St. Louis, because they had this urgent care that was fully equipped like an ER, but wasn't nearly as busy. So you could always go. And so this became my go-to spot. (laughs) And so like they knew me there. It was like the same thing, like my childhood, you know, the doctor there, they knew me. They were like, oh, you know, go to your normal room. (laughs) So I show up and... 
I was so tachycardic and I hadn't had anything to drink because I couldn't swallow anything that I was so dehydrated and my mouth was so swollen. They're like, how are you even breathing? And so they immediately put me on an IV with like broad spectrum antibiotics and like a bunch of steroids and stuff and you know just dripped it for a while to try and get like the swelling to calm down and then they did a bunch of tests you know you test for mono and you test for just all of the things that would cause your throat to look like that right and everything came back negative (laughs) and so they were basically like well you just have tonsillitis like that's a real bummer but we need to do a ct scan because it was so bad they wanted to make sure it didn't have like an abscess of my tonsil Thank goodness I didn't have that. But they basically just kind of sent me on my way and said, here you go, have some steroids, have some penicillin because we don't really know what's wrong. And Mm. it was fine because, you know, I went home and it sucked for a few days, but I eventually recovered. And so that was like definitely the first experience of my Lyme symptoms turning into something that wasn't as neurological anymore. It was more physical and I could tell something was wrong. But, and I know you, Julia, had very similar experiences where you'd get like this insane fever and extremely swollen lymph nodes for a certain number of days. Yeah. And it's interesting that both of us have very similar, almost like onset symptoms. Exactly. Yeah. Which is super strange. So yeah, like I would get this weird, so you could kind of tell something was wrong, but I was feeling good enough and the neurological symptoms were fine enough that it seemed like it was going to be okay. But then freshman year, you know, both finals weeks, I got strep infections and it was either strep B or tonsillitis and it like just kept going this way. So it keeps showing up to this urgent care and it never got as bad as that first time I was there. So they started giving me steroid shots in my arm which if you've ever had a steroid shot before, it's literally like tar being injected into your arm. It is the most painful. It's so bad. And you're already in so much pain. You're just like, this might as well happen. Yeah. It's, oh my God, so bad. It's so bad. So I would never allow myself to say that I was sick during finals week because then I knew I was never going to be able to finish my finals. So every finals week I would come home and as soon as I got home, I would basically just collapse in my living room. Because I was so fatigued and I was so sick that I could finally admit that I was sick. I would be like, Mom, I like help me. <laughs> Need help. Yeah. And so we would basically, like I would spend Christmas break or part like the early parts of summer trying to recover from this. But basically I never, you would never recover. I was still extremely fatigued where it kind of feels like when you open your eyes, it's like an elephant just falls on your face. There's like, you're not refreshed at all. Up until this time, I had no idea that you were supposed to feel refreshed when you woke up. And that's an overall theme for my health journey is that I really don't have a great baseline of what is well. Like I don't remember feeling very well because it started when I was so young. So a lot of the things I grew up thinking were very normal and It was, it's then challenging for me even today to do treatments and know, okay, is, is this treatment not working or is this as good as you're supposed to feel? Right. And so I've luckily had a few glimpses throughout the past few years and I'm like, oh, this is significantly different than how I feel. Right. So this is a difference. (laughs) Yeah. So then you know, okay, no, I'm not like, I'm definitely not well. I have to keep 
fighting this, trying new things. And so I basically, you know, I finished out my freshman year and it was really great aside from these, you know, weird infections and strep-like things that I kept getting. And I was actually traveling to Morocco for a study abroad for the summer because I was studying Arabic and I was going to do an intensive language program. And I basically showed up and this is kind of when things started to fall apart for, you know, the final time. And I suddenly, like my cognitive function declined. Like I would look, I was, you know, asked to go on this trip by my Arabic professor because he was, you know, he's like, you show a lot of promise. And I think this is, you know, after your first year is the most effective time to do something like this. But I showed up and I suddenly just could not function and couldn't understand the Arabic in the way that I was able to do during school. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I mean, I was so frustrated because all of the other students who were also students with me at school were, you know, doing fine. And I'm looking at this and I just, I can't, like, it will not click in my brain anymore. And Mm. I was super nervous and anxious while there. I started to get very jumpy. There was a break in the middle of the, you know, semester that we were there. And I was, you know, went to visit my family and my uncle would put his hand on my shoulder and I would freak out and smack it away and jump up. And he was just like, what is, like, what's happening to you? And it just seemed very odd. And, you know, I got through the end of it and I came home and like, once again, I still had an incredibly, you know, swollen lymph nodes and sore throat that just like had never gone away from my freshman year. And so I came home and they're like, okay, you know, you need to get a tonsillectomy, which Hmm. if you've ever had a tonsillectomy as an adult is significantly worse than having it as a child. I would not recommend it, (laughs) but it basically, it's not a hard surgery, but when you're older, it's significantly more painful and harder to recover from. And so they were basically like, you got to get your tonsils out, even though you know, it'll really help. And so you're sitting there like, okay, great. Like if this is going to, you know, this is going to help me. It's going to make my sore throats go away. You know, it's going to be great. And right. you know, newsflash, it didn't help. I had Lyme disease, it didn't not work. an issue with, you know, like my tonsils, like that wasn't the problem. So right. I got my tonsils out and I did it exactly two weeks before school started. And two weeks is the recovery period. So of course, 1% of people get what's called postoperative bleeding. So I ended up back in the ER a few days after my surgery because I like pushed myself over in bed and all of this blood filled my mouth. And so I was like, oh, great. Oh my God. So right. I show up back at the ER and they're basically like, okay, they need to get like a good look to see where the bleed is coming from so they can cauterize it. So they use a tongue depressor, but it's metal and it's at a 90 degree angle. So it's two tongue depressors put together at 90 degrees and they stick the entire thing in your mouth all the way back to the corner. And then they try and suction out the back of your throat to figure out where it is. Now, I don't understand how they don't think you're going to throw up when they do this. Right. Because (laughs) strep test on steroids. I, the guy starts doing this and all of a sudden I'm like, I'm going to throw up. And so he just kind of puts his hands out and I like throw up into his hands. And then he just puts it on the bed next to me. Like he was totally unprepared for this to happen. Oh my God. And then he had to keep doing it. And so I kept throwing up 
And then he finally did it with them, was able to cauterize it with some silver nitrate. And then they, you know, took all of my blood panels to see if I needed a blood transfusion, which I didn't, but, you know, thank goodness. But I was still really nauseous because I had been swallowing blood for the past three days. So it was like all in my stomach. And thank goodness a lot of it I had just thrown up, but um, it was just really gross. But my doctor who actually did the surgery came in in the morning and was basically like, I'm so sorry because I would have taken you back to the OR. Like I would never do this on somebody who is awake. And so you're just oh sitting there like, well, okay. And my mom's like I so literally traumatized all because of she that. had to watch. Oh my God. Set back my recovery for a while. Um, and so when I actually returned to school, I wasn't fully recovered and I couldn't lift anything because they didn't want me to pop a blood vessel or anything like that. And so my mom, my, my dear mom is moving me into my dorm room and she messed up her back. Like she's a saint. She's, you know, really carrying the load here. And um, as soon as I got to school, all of this rush of neuropsychiatric symptoms came back. It was like a switch flipped. And all of a sudden it was overcome with this like crippling social and like generalized anxiety, OCD kind of patterns. Like, I started walking the back way to class because I didn't want to see anyone. I would not go, I wouldn't go out to parties or anything like that. And if I wouldn't, I lived above the dining hall and I would like strategically plan the times where there was not going to be a lot of people in the dining hall because I was like too scared to go down there at the time. And at the same time, so I obviously hated going out. But not only that, like, if I drank anything when going out, I hate the taste of alcohol. So I would take, like, a shot, and usually that wouldn't cause any issue for me or really to feel anything. And I would go and spend 15 minutes there so socially anxious and, like, comfortable, and then I would get really nauseous. And so I would just go home because I was like, this is miserable. And then I would just throw up for the entire night. And it was so strange. I was having this, like, allergic reaction to alcohol. And originally I thought, you know, it was because I was so anxious it was causing this to happen. If you don't know, if you have Lyme disease, one of the big tells from other diseases is your exaggerated effect to alcohol. So either, you know, one drink makes you feel as if you've had sex or, you know, you get really hungover really quickly. So like for me, that's what was happening. It was kind of both. Like I was getting hungover within like 20 minutes of drinking and it was from barely drinking anything. And so I just basically stopped going out altogether because it was like, after this happened three or four times, I was like, this is miserable. It's not worth it. I don't enjoy right. being there anyway. Like, so I kind of, I decided, you know, it starts to spiral for the rest of the semester. I'm having this like insane social anxiety and I, you know, I decided I'm like, okay, I'm going to start going back to therapy. Like, I'm sure this will be helpful. And Jessica was my therapist and she's truly a godsend. Like I would not have lived if it wasn't for her, but, um, we started talking and we're going through some stuff and, you know, you can find little things like self-esteem issues that I was having because of, you know, being dismissed by a bunch of doctors and always feeling very separate from people my age because of always being ill and never being able to tell anybody about it. And so, you know, it seemed like there could be some reason, you know, we were trying to pick out reasons why it would feel this way because it was seemed very, it was obviously a sudden onset, but it seemed very strange. Right. And I started like gaining a lot of weight and I looked like incredibly inflamed. Like, mm. and by, and so I went, you know, I went home for Christmas and 
I just, I wasn't well. And I came back and it was just getting worse. And then February came of, you know, 2018 and it was my sophomore year of college. And I woke up one day and it was like another switch had flipped. Like it was like the final straw. And mm-hmm. like there was this plate glass window in front of me in every interaction would just kind of like pass me by. And I started developing this insane insomnia where last week I barely slept at all. I would go to bed at eight and I would stare at the ceiling until 7 a.m. And then I would sleep for two hours and then wake up and go to class. And on top of obviously like continuing to have these sore throats and I was, you know, having this insane exhaustion on top of, you know, not being able to sleep and I was thirsty all the time. And I started to have these panic attacks like every night while I was trying to go to bed and they weren't related to anything. I would just be laying there trying to go to bed and all of a sudden I would just be like freaking out in my bed and Mm. like it just seemed very odd and nobody could really figure it out. I kept, you know, having these issues of like, okay, I'm super boring. Like that's, I felt like I was so boring because my cognitive function was so bad that while I was trying to have conversations with friends or anything, like I can remember being at dinner with a couple of friends and they were talking and I could not think of anything to add to the conversation. Like I just think there was nothing coming to my mind. It's really sad. Like it was, it was depressing. So I just figured I was super boring and like just didn't have any original thought or ideas. And I was like, why would anyone want to hang out with me? So that's obviously more depressing. Yeah. It continued to the depression that was going on there. And it wasn't until I later, you know, got diagnosed with Lyme disease and they handed me like a cognitive function questionnaire. And one of the things said, can you not think of, you know, things to add to the conversation? I was like, that is a symptom of something. Like, so it <laughs> I there was just being, something weird with me. Yeah, no, I just thought it was super boring. So I was just spiraling and it was basically like I was sleeping all the time. I couldn't stay awake for longer than four hours. So it was like, you know, trying to go to bed, could barely sleep, would have like two or three panic attacks, wake up, go to class, come back, sleep, try and do some homework, fall asleep while reading, like all of these things have these headaches. I was super thirsty. So they were like, okay, let's test you for diabetes. So I didn't have diabetes. They tested me for mono. My spleen was super inflamed. So they did a CT of my spleen. They ran a thyroid panel, all of these different things, because like the doctor looked at me and said, you know, based on your symptoms, we're going to run some tests for some really scary stuff, but it'll all be explained to you later. And then just walked out of the room. I was like, what does that even mean? (laughs) Right. And so I was like, okay. But after they ran all of this stuff and some stuff, they didn't even tell me what they ran because I think he was like too nervous to tell me what it was. Right. But he's, they were basically like, you have a sinus infection. And I was like, well, listen, I've lived with the feeling of a sinus infection for a very long time. And so they just sent me with meds for a sinus infection and I like went on my merry way. And I basically just kept getting so much worse. And my therapist was just like, I don't know what to do. And so I started seeing this psychologist and they started, or psychiatrist, and they started putting me on different antidepressants to see if anything would work. And nothing even made a dent. And so it was so bad because, you know, normally antidepressants don't cure, you know, the whole thing, but they at least make a little bit of a difference. You can tell if something is working or not. And it was just, I was trying so many different ones and nothing was working. 
And so she's like, I think you should do an intensive outpatient program. Like you should, you know, take a medical leave of absence from school because this program is every day. And I kind of sat there and I was like, absolutely not. I'm not taking, like, I'll go to this program, but I'm not taking a medical leave of absence from school because apparently I'm incredibly stubborn. And so like everybody, like my parents, my, all of my doctors, like you have to like not be there anymore. But instead I moved one of my classes to earlier in the day and I would go, like I would go to my classes and then I would drive to therapy that was like 15 minutes away from like for three hours and then drive home, try and do a little bit of work and then pass out again. And I could keep that up for about three weeks before, you know, it's really only making things worse. And they wanted me to do this mindfulness tape, which I'm actually significantly better at now. But I was so exhausted and felt so unwell all the time that they would leave me to do like 15 minutes of a mindfulness thing. And I would just hit pause, lie on the floor and pass out for that amount of time. And then I would go knock on the door and be like, okay, I'm done. And they would come back. And it basically like, I just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And I was having all these panic attacks continuing. And I was basically in so much mental pain. I thought I was physically dying. And I was just like, I'm going to die. Like this is just, and I also didn't feel, I physically didn't feel well, but once again, some of those things I didn't know were abnormal, but also I was in so much mental pain that it was kind of like overriding any kind of physical pain. And so I spent the summer in my interning in my hometown because my parents were like, you clearly can't be left alone. So, and I also decided, yeah, I'm like, you need, you need to be closely monitored. Right. So I decided to transfer to UNC and I'm still going to therapy. And I was basically just trying to do anything that would make me feel better. But, you know, I'm staring at spreadsheets and I have massive migraines and I keep falling asleep at the desk, like stuff like that. And I just couldn't, I couldn't function. And eventually I arrive at UNC. I didn't know a soul. So I was super nervous. And so my social anxiety is still at a huge height. I start classes and I'm like trying to read these articles. It had like an international relations degree. And so it was basically just read articles, write essays was like my college experience. (laughs) And so I was reading and I would sit at my desk and I would try and read and I would just have to like lay my head down because it was so physically exhausting to read. And so obviously that's really hard to do when you're trying to do all these things. And I'm, you know, I still have this shooting pain in my legs. I have this migratory muscle and joint pain and I've got this nerve pain and my depression and panic attacks and anxiety is just at an all time high where I just am deteriorating by the day and it just keeps getting worse to the point in which I would, I had roommates other rooms, but I would be still not be able to sleep. And so I'd be laying there and I would start to have these like scream panic attacks in which I would silently scream and just kind of shake and sit there and call my mom at like three o'clock in the morning. And she's just like, what is happening to you? And I eventually, it was like this weekend, which was probably September. And so I kind of hit bottom through that. And I basically told my parents, you know, when you come, I need to go home with you because there's something seriously wrong and, you know, trying to do school and figure it out and treat it is not worth it. Like I need to full time focus on figuring out what's going on. 
Right. So I had a lot of conversations with my parents that weekend, you know, about what we were going to do. And of course, I'm incredibly stubborn again and decided not to leave school, but I was still deteriorating. And so my mom had been doing this like my entire time I was growing up, but she kept getting a lot of pushback from all kinds of doctors about like what else could be going on. Like if she ever has these neuropsychiatric symptoms, they're not related to anything going on in her life. They're not triggered by anything. Her panic attacks aren't triggered by anything. Her fatigue is too extreme to be normal, like all these things. So she really aggressively starts searching for answers. And thankfully, one of her good friends and her three children had Lyme disease. And they said, well, you might as well get her tested for it. And so my mom told me that I was going to get tested for it. I was like, okay, awesome. I'm sure it'll come back negative like everything else I've ever gotten tested for. Right. <laughs> and the friend gave us the number of this doctor in New York City and my was basically on a cancellation list. And my mom called me one day and was like, your flight leaves in three hours. Like, oh, and so <laughs> New York from North Carolina. And um, I start seeing this Lyme specialist and he hands me a, this symptom air, like the symptom questionnaire. And I'm looking at it. Symptom air, I think, should be a word. Is that a word? I love that word. <laughs> I think symptom questionnaires do in well. our I like world that it should be a word yes. yes so I start looking at it if you've ever had a symptom air as you we were going to call it now for Lyme disease it's so long it's like, yeah. so I start filling this out and I was shocked because every time I would turn to my parents and say that doesn't happen to you and they'd be like of course that doesn't happen to me I don't feel like somebody's stabbing me in the legs like I get dizzy every time I stand up you know the level of fatigue that they were describing on there, no, that doesn't happen. Like all of these things that I didn't know were not normal. And so right. I spent three hours with this doctor and he basically sat there and was, you know, he was the one who told me about, you know, yes, you do have pandas. Like I was explaining to him what happened and his background was originally in child psychology. And he's like, that's the, the textbook definition of pandas. Like that's what happened. And so he was basically like, you have Lyme disease. I have to test you for it, but you have it. So obviously right. they take an enormous amount of blood. And I'm sitting there and I finally get it back, you know, about a week later. And I have, you know, Lyme, Babesia, EBV, parvovirus, mycoplasma, the Coxsackie virus, um, Barnella, all of these different, basically like the kitchen sink of right. things that are wrong with you. And so I started this really strong antibiotic antiparasitic cocktail with like a thousand supplements, which I know everybody is always really excited about taking. Right. And they burn your esophagus to pieces. Yeah. It's a really good time. But yeah. yeah so what was within, I started taking that, that was the October of 2018 and December of that year, 80% of those psychiatric symptoms were gone which was phenomenal because that was like the biggest hurdle that was causing, you know, the most amount of pain. And I was sitting there right. like, I was like, I'm going to die. Like I can tell that I'm physically dying because I'm so mentally unwell. So there was just kind of like a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel, but I kind of, and I know we talked about this, Julia, with you is when you've had Lyme for a long time or you're trying to treat chronic Lyme, you get better to an extent. Right. And so I basically hit a plateau in which 
I, you know, a bunch of the psychiatric symptoms got significantly better, but I still had all this fatigue and this pain and these headaches and, you know, light sensitivity and all of that jazz. (laughs) And so I kind of, you know, I stayed in school because I, you know, was starting to feel better, at least um, psychiatrically. And so I would get some accommodations, which were great because sometimes, you know, trying to go to class with an unpredictable illness is really hard. And I can't always tell a teacher in advance that I'm not going to feel well in the morning. Yeah. (laughs) So, like, I get fair warning about it. My professor is probably not going to get it either. Right. So comes out of nowhere on my way to class. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, (laughs) if it comes, like, all of a sudden, if I get one of these ocular migraines and I can't see, I'm not going to show up to class. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's not going to happen. But so right at the end of 2018, we do a spec scan. We look for all these autoimmune markers. They have super high thyroid antibodies, like over 500. I think the cutoff is nine. And, you know, I have hypoperfusion of different parts of my brain, which can happen with Lyme because it affects, you know, brain relation and stuff like that. So I'm consistently switching between different antibiotics to try and get at these different tick-borne diseases. And... I started Mepron, which I'm very sorry for anybody who has ever had that because <laughs> it is legitimately yellow paint. It is. Like, it's it's honestly – like, I remember when I first got it, I was at um, Justin's house, and his parents were, like, genuinely concerned. They were like, what is that? Like, why, why are you are putting you, that into yeah. your body? Yeah. Yeah. You're like, I don't even know. Like, but it's, it's like, I don't know. I think everything. it makes me feel better. Yes. Yeah. Like, you can't use a regular glass for it because it won't. Like, you put the glass in the dishwasher, it doesn't wash it. No, it won't. Like, fingernails were yellow. Like, it was just all of us. It was crazy. Yeah. (laughs) So, I saw, you know, we're coming to the new year in 2019, and I, you know, I'm back at school, and I see an endocrinologist, and they diagnose me with Hashimoto's, and so really nothing was working at this point. I would wake up as soon as I would wake up. It's like an elephant lands on your face and you're sitting there. I would start planning. When can I take a nap throughout my day? So I would go to class, come home, take a nap, go to class, come home, take a nap, do homework, take a nap in between, eat dinner, go to bed. Like it was no like way to stay awake. And I kept getting these, you know, really intense headaches at night. I'm gently socializing, but not often because if you've ever gone out and you have a chronic illness like this or anything, you can't drink. Everybody else is super drunk around you. It's not fun. The only right. thing you're thinking about is how tired or how much pain you're in. So you're just right. not even like physically like present. Right. It's not even fun. No. And I started these injections, what are called bicillin injections. And I would say they have the consistency of mayonnaise. Yep. But basically, it's not like a regular liquid injection you have to do it in the side of your thigh and you basically have to hold it for 10 minutes as you push it in because if you do it too quickly like it basically explode so like the needle has to sit in there for a long time and so they're painful and then it makes you super sore and I luckily had met this incredible human being his name was Seth who was going to meet with me for any of our like cocktails that we would go out to and stuff. And he would go as my date. And I remember I'd met him the first week I got to UNC and in a class that I was in. And the first time we were going to one of these cocktail parties, we basically were studying the night before. And I told him that I had Lyme disease and I wasn't going to drink. And he kind of starts blinking at me and saying, I also have Lyme disease like this insane. And so 
he was just so great to have somebody who really understood that. And I would go, you know, we would be at these parties and he would see the fatigue on my face and he would look at me and we'd been only there for 20 minutes and he'd be like, we're leaving. And, Mm. you know, we would go home and like, that was great. And he would also, because I was so sore on my hips from ever been on a dance floor, like people bump into you a lot and that really hurt. So Seth would like block for me so that like nobody, like they would hit him instead of me. And so just like honestly such a nice soul to like have during that time and somebody that I really appreciated. And, but it was just, nothing was working. It wasn't getting any better. And so over the summer, they put a Hickman line in my chest for IV antibiotics, which is a very strange feeling. Julie, I know you had your whole experience getting your pick line in in <laughs> the worst. just a time and a half. Yeah. But I pop it through an artery in your neck, so they don't want you to, like, freak out. Um, right. But they, I basically had these antibiotics for four months, and nothing seems to be helping. I might as well be injecting water into my veins. So they take it out in October and, you know, I'm still having this light sensitivity, headaches. I'm having this like muscle neck joint pain and, you know, this intense fatigue. Like at this point, the fatigue was by far the worst thing. Like I just could not stay awake. And every moment that I was awake was thinking about either how tired I was or planning what time I could go. Like, I, yeah. So I basically went in the fall of my senior year to Columbia University has like a Lyme second opinion program and they do great things with like neurocognitive testing and all kinds of stuff and so for me they did this four-hour neurocognitive test which is exhausting and they're basically like yeah we're seeing concentration problems some memory problems like motor movement like being and then I also got diagnosed with another tick-borne disease, which is anaplasmosis, and they were wrong with my immune system. Like, they also saw that I had a vitamin D deficiency, so I jump on, like, a vitamin D supplement, which is literally the only thing that has ever affected my fatigue levels. Now, it was still really bad, but I felt, like, a little glimpse of hope because who knew when you woke up you didn't have to feel like a brick landed on your chest? I know. It's insane. <laughs> it's yeah like, who knew that was the case and so like this was right. one of those moments where I started to have like small breakthrough of like less pain less headaches less fatigue and I was like oh this is how you're supposed to feel in life like, th- this is phenomenal and so I was off antibiotics because they hadn't been helping and I'd been on them for about a year so it's you know they do all kinds of stuff to your body and I went to a gastroenterologist and cause I'm still, I'm nauseous a lot and I have a little appetite and basically they find out that I have gallstones and that was, you know, a side effect of medication that I had been on. And it's frustrating with Lyme because there aren't great treatments for it and you have to treat it with antibiotics to kill some of these infections, but the antibiotics also do negative things to your body and you have to take them because, you know, I was basically, you know, on the verge of not making it if I didn't take them, but you know, they do a number, especially to your gut. Right. And so I was home for the holiday season. And if you, there is a thing called like a gallbladder attack where basically you have this really intense pain between your shoulder blades and underneath your rib cage in the front because that's like kind of where your gallbladder sits and it's just so awful there's like no way that you can contort your body to make it feel any better 
And so I had this gallbladder attack and I'd had a couple of them before, but this time I was like violently throwing up and all of that stuff. And of course, once again, it's the middle of the night. So I show up at the ER and they give me some morphine and we start having a discussion about needing to get my gallbladder out. And I kind of look at them and I was like, this morphine has been in for 20 minutes and it's not doing anything. And so then they gave me fentanyl because that's, I guess, the next drug up. And it finally like cut off the edge a little bit, but, and they, we, you know, I had discussions with people about getting it out, but you know, it went away for enough time that it was like, we'll leave it for now. But I'm always kind of mildly nauseous and I'm always, you know, I don't have a great appetite. And other than that, I'm still feeling okay. And then in February of 2020, I kind of like relapse. I have another one of those feelings where a switch flips and I'm exhausted again. I can't get out of bed. I am sleeping between classes and like barely making it to class on time. All of a sudden, this extreme depression is back from, you know, right before I got diagnosed with Lyme disease and I can't figure out what's going on. So I switched to a different doctor and I saw, you know, Dr. Horowitz and his nurse practitioner, John Fallon, who are phenomenal doctors. And they, um, he has a book that, or two books actually, that are really great for information about Lyme disease, which are um, how can I get better and why can I get better? Why and get it's better? just yeah. full of so much great information and like well-researched and it just, it gets super helpful for anybody who might want to read it. And I talked with them and basically, you know, I, we reconfirmed that I have, you know, Babesia, Bartonella, Mycoplasma, the Coxsackie virus, like all of these things. We try some more antibiotics, but very little improvement. And so they try and test my adrenals and they do my adrenals. And basically I'd had them tested before and they were fine, but this time they basically like not functioning at all. And so I tried a steroid to help. And so we're kind of sitting there like in the space of you have negative adrenal function, but you kind of can't do anything about it. So it was challenging for to try and figure out what to do. And I just consistently have this inability to recover. You know, I graduated from college in May and I came back to live with my parents for a year because I hadn't taken any time off and I really wanted to try and focus on recovery because I've been doing this year since I graduated because I do want to go to law school next year and I'm trying to focus on, I was originally going to do counterterrorism work, but after I got sick and kind of fully experienced the kind of in the healthcare system, especially with how we treat chronic disease and those with chronic illness, especially how we treat Lyme patients, considering how much of an epidemic it's becoming in all areas of the country. I really wanted to try and make like lasting change by, you know, making sure that laws are pushed through and like legislation that, you know, make insurance companies cover certain things, you know, require doctors to do, you know, certain, you know, certain tests and stuff like that. Um, And just advocating as much as possible for that. So this inability to recover, we went to the pumpkin patch for an hour with my family and I barely made it to the bed before I just passed out for six more hours. And it went to the cardiologist because I always had this rapid heart rate and they basically, he looks at me, he's like, your heart beats 30,000 more times a day than the regular person. Oh and gosh. so I was like, well, that's insane. 
So um, he puts me on a beta blocker and it definitely helps bring the heart rate down a little bit, but it doesn't help with any of my symptoms. Right. And then a few months ago, I got this really significant increase in neuropathy pain in my legs and in my arms. So I went to see this neurologist who diagnosed me with you know, small fiber neuropathy, demyelinating polyneuropathy, and then he did a tilt table test with me where basically... I, you know, I'm always dizzy when I stand up, but it's just kind of become my, you know, you get used to it and you just kind of figure out how to not fall over. Yeah, you like, you hold on to things whenever you stand up. That's what I do. <laughs> yeah, you're like, you hold on to something, you like steady yourself against a wall until you can see yep. again, like just I don't anything. Yeah. And he did the test and he tilted me up on the, on the board and he basically looked at, are, are you okay? I was like, yeah. Like, this is nothing. Like, I haven't even started to see, like, all of the black spots that I normally see when I stand up. And I guess, like, my blood pressure had bottomed out so much for 30 seconds that it just, like, didn't even read on the graph anymore. And so they were just looking at it like, this is, a, this is not good. Like, so he diagnosed me with, yeah, dysautonomia. And then he was basically looking at it like I did a PET scan of my brain and they actually found relatively significant um hypo metabolism in the temporal lobe of my brain and they were looking at it and they said you know this is why you have such weird psychiatric dis like disorders with Lyme disease and so Lyme can affect the metabolism in your brain and you know cause all of these types of things to happen because it affected my temporal lobe where your memory and your emotions are stored and you know processed that's why I always had these very strange neuropsychiatric symptoms. But they were also looking at it and explaining when I would explain to them that idea of like, oh, and a switch flipped and this happened. And they, were, they said, you know, with this scan, that could definitely be temporal lobe epilepsy. And so I spent the right before Christmas in a hospital down at NYU and they were, you have like 25 electrodes on your head and they videotape you the whole time. They have somebody watching to see if you do anything weird or if they can catch a seizure like while you're there. And they thought that they were happening at night for me relatively often too. And so like that could be affecting my like level of fatigue. And so I, they didn't end up catching a seizure while I was there, which either means I didn't have one while I was there, which isn't abnormal because... I can go long periods of time without having these like switch flip moments. But basically you with the temporal lobe, like where it is in the brain and where I would be having seizures, it's very hard for an EEG to pick up on it in that space because it's so deep in the brain. And so I started and right now I've kind of been on for about a little more than a week, a epilepsy medication to see if it would help at all. And it has definitely helped been really great because most of the time it seems like every time we find something new, it's just like endless. Like, okay, you tried this, right. something new, because then there's nothing you can do about it or whatever treatment just doesn't seem to work. And so finding out that this moment of intense fear that I would have and then depression or anxiety or some other panic attack symptoms that would happen afterwards were actually very similar to the aura that you get before a temporal lobe seizure was very comforting to me because it made me feel more validated in how moments that I experience it thing. Right. And at least made it make more sense. 
And so that's kind of what I'm doing right now and like working towards, you know, trying to make sure, you know, I'm in the place where I've been doing nutritional testing and things like that. And it doesn't really seem like anything, you know, is I'm not digesting food very well. And the antibiotics have done a really big number on my gut. And so for me, antibiotics just really aren't more of an option to try and treat this Lyme infection because- I, you know, I still have muscle pain. I still have fatigue. Lyme can cause, especially when you have neurological Lyme, it can cause these epilepsy symptoms to happen and it can cause you to have these seizures. And so I'm trying to find different, a different treatment that wouldn't be antibiotics to work with because I need to like heal my gut enough to be able to, you know, function as a normal human being. So I'm actually very, (laughs) yeah, exactly. You have to try, you have to, I think, Julia, you always tell me about this, like, you have to, like, treat it, and then you have to recover from treating it, and you have to try to treat it again. (laughs) Right, right. It's, like, kill, detox, support, and then you just, like, constantly go through that. And there are times where it's, like, well, I want to kill it right now. Like, I feel like I'm ready to, but I can't take antibiotics, and, like, supplements haven't worked in the, you know, it's just, yeah, it's cyclical. Yeah, and it's really hard. And there's also, like, a cycle of I mean, the way that, you know, Lyme persists in the body, like they, it goes dormant for a certain amount of time and then it pops out when you're like weak and vulnerable, like you had a tonsillectomy. So your body is, you know, weaker. And so that's when it popped out for me most recently and stuff like that. So I'm actually starting something called IVIG on tomorrow, actually. It's today, Thursday. It's going to be tomorrow. So. Um, I'm excited. It's definitely supposed to be an immune boosting support and it really is supposed to help people with um, central nervous system and like peripheral neuropathy problems and like dysfunction, autonomic nervous dysfunction, like dysautonomia. So I'm very excited and thankful because this is definitely not like a widely available treatment, but by the grace of God, my insurance company approved it. So, oh my God, never happens. (laughs) Yeah, literally never happens. So, um, I'm definitely excited to give it a shot and hopefully it kind of, you know, makes a little bit of a difference or at least makes my body strong enough that it can start fighting, you know, some of these things on its own. Right. Um, so I, that's my whole story up until now. And, you know, I'll, I'm still fighting and trying to make it work and doing the best I can, but it's different every day and you struggle differently every day depending on, you know, what symptom has decided to attack you that day. Right. Right. But you know, for me it was fatigue today because I took a walk yesterday and then I had this intense pain in my legs when I woke up. So Julia and I decided to push our little recording session back. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It kind of, I think this is, you know, something that Maddie and I are going to continue to talk about um, in the podcast is, you know, although we've shared kind of like our Lyme journey thus far, it doesn't mean that it's over and it doesn't mean that any given day we have energy or we're not in pain or we can read or we have brain fog. Um, and I think that that's something that can often be misunderstood for so many of us is that people kind of assume like, oh, you had Lyme, you know, three years ago, you're better now. And, you know, that's kind of a part of the conversation that Maddie and I are really hoping to start to bring awareness to the fact that for some of us, you know, yes, we had Lyme three years ago, but we also have it now. And now we also have, 
you know, our adrenals are failing because of Lyme. And so now we have to deal with that. And, you know, if you looked at us, you wouldn't know that we're still sick and we're still constantly juggling doctor's appointments and like getting tests back all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I think it's really a goal of this podcast is to, you know, definitely break that thought process that just because you look a certain way or because you used to have Lyme doesn't mean that today you are 100% better. Exactly. And I'm hoping that by hearing my story and by listening to Julia's story on her episode, you guys will feel, you know, a little less alone in that experience. You know, whether you have, you know, Lyme disease or another chronic illness, it can be super isolating. Being dismissed by doctors for a long time can be super frustrating. And, you know, you might be struggling in there and maybe the opportunity to listen to us talk and you could just, you know, relate to one of our stories. You know, we have some similar symptoms, but we also have, you know, very different ones in other ways. And, you know, that's really the reality of Lyme disease. It doesn't affect one, every person the same way. It's very individualized. And so I think that's one of the reasons why it's really hard to diagnose. But, you know, if we get more research and more testing, which is super important and for, you know, getting better treatments and stuff like that and for faster diagnoses, which are all things that the Global Lyme Alliance is working really hard to, you know, raise funds and awareness so that that can happen. And so, you know, if you guys need any information about Lyme disease or want to support Lyme patients, there is a link in the bio to the Global Lyme Alliance website, and they have all kinds of information about doctors in different areas and different stages of Lyme disease and all kinds of things like that that can definitely help and they have all the current research. So thank you for listening and hopefully this was helpful for some of you guys. Our following episodes coming up will be more Julia and I talking about big conversations about having Lyme disease and having chronic illness. Things like the guilt that comes along with it, the grief that comes along with it, how you know, relationships change because of it. If it's relationships with family or friends or a significant other, anything like that. So hopefully those will be topics that you guys will enjoy and just be able to relate to. And then we also have some great interviews with um, other Lyme patients and researchers coming up that we're really excited to talk with you guys about. So-